tonight on The Readout. And I always tell my American friends, if you let um, Islam being seeded on your soil, don't be surprised that you will harvest Sharia law. But, uh, I mean, there are more than a billion Muslims in the world. Can yes. we keep them out of North America or indeed Western Europe? Well, I think we have to. That was far-right politician Hirt Wilders speaking at Donald Trump's nominating convention in 2016. Now, Wilders has won a major victory in the Netherlands, another troubling sign of the rise of far-right extremists getting elected around the world. Also tonight, an extended reprieve from the fighting in Gaza as more hostages are released in exchange for Palestinians imprisoned in Israel. Plus, the shocking events over the weekend in Vermont as three college students of Palestinian descent are shot by a lone assailant. The latest on the investigation into this apparent hate crime. And we begin tonight with a dark moon rising around the globe. Just before we all broke for the Thanksgiving holiday, we received disturbing news from the Netherlands. The Dutch people handed anti-Islamic populist Heert Wilders a stunning and resounding victory. What he offered his country was a referendum on leaving the European Union, or Nexit, a complete hold on asylum seekers and a migrant pushback at Dutch borders. He's also called for the de-Islamization of the country, which includes no mosques and no Islamic schools. It was a stunning swing for the country, which is one of Europe's most socially liberal and has prided itself on tolerance. Now, many of you probably don't know or remember Wilders, but he has been an opposition force in the country for years, and he's best known for his bottle blonde hair. He's also well known for his Islamophobic rhetoric, which has made him a magnet for extremists and popular among ultra-nationalist leaders worldwide. He once compared the Koran to Mein Kampf. His victory comes as Europe and the rest of the world go through his spe- go through this spasmodic tug of war between liberalism and ultra-nationalism. Roughly a week ago, the Argentine people elected self-proclaimed anarcho-capitalist libertarian Javier Millet as president. In 2020, as he announced his entry into politics, Millet told the world that he wanted to blow up the system. He also defended the country's dictatorship and their atrocities. We'll soon get to see what that looks like. Malay has already promised to ban abortion, ban gay marriage, and slash the size of government. In October, the Polish people, who've been ruled by a conservative party that dismantled the judicial system, mainstreamed nationalism, and set the country at odds with the European Union, well, they voted that party out. Meanwhile, in Italy, Georgia Meloni was elected prime minister. Her party, the Brothers of Italy, has roots in nostalgia for fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. Maloney has moderated her stance, which is what Wilders has vowed to do. But he will have to bring together a governing coalition first. Naturally, you can't help but wonder if this is what's in store for the U.S., given that we are dangerously close to re-electing Donald Trump. A man who's made vengeance, xenophobia, and authoritarian crackdowns his 2024 political platform. Trump spent Thanksgiving truthing unhinged promises about repealing Obamacare and screaming about his legal cases when he wasn't confusing Joe Biden for Barack Obama again. We already know what he wants to do to migrants in the United States, and it's a plan based on President Eisenhower's 1954 deportation campaign, offensively called Operation Wetback, 
which is fitting for Trump. Trump wants to conduct sweeping raids to round up millions of migrants, shove them into camps and have them forcibly deported. This would be paired with a ban on immigration from Muslim majority countries. And he plans to revoke visa status for foreign students who participated in anti-Israel or pro-Palestinian protests. He also plans to end temporary protected status for people like Haitians and Afghan immigrants fleeing the Taliban. And for all of those who want to take to the streets and protest, well, he's already stated his desire to use the Insurrection Act to direct the U.S. military to crush dissent in mostly Democratic cities. And frankly, the way our laws are written and given the weakness and fecklessness of Trump's political party, there isn't much that can stop him. The signs we're seeing at home and abroad make it clear that we continue to face an existential crisis. And as Perry Bacon Jr. notes in the Washington Post, it's more than democratic versus anti-democratic. It's whether we want a multiracial democracy or no democracy at all. Joining me now is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history and a scholar of authoritarianism at New York University, and David Jolly, MSNBC political analyst and former Republican congressman who is no longer affiliated with the party. Ruth, I do want to go to you first and just get your reaction to these serial elections in Argentina, where Mr. Malay was elected, and the election of Mr. Wilders, who is a rather notorious uh, Islamophobic uh, and far right wing figure. Yeah, we're, we're living through times where hate is on the agenda, uh, anti-immigrant, um, you know, anti-immigration, hatred is currency. And it's like each one learns from the other. And we need to see the United States in perspective of uh, this kind of transnational trend toward these outrageous rogue uh, figures like uh, Wilders, who, uh, as you noted, uh, is extremely violent against uh, Islam and immigrants and would like a total removal of immigrants. And we need to see this uh, as related to what Trump wants to do. There's a reason he's always uh, put immigration, uh, you know, from the very beginning saying Mexicans were rapists. He's been kind of psychologically conditioning Americans to hate immigrants for many, many years. And now if he comes back, he's going to uh, implement policies that will resemble those of far right leaders abroad. You know, and David, uh, you know, we're, I'm reminded that Donald Trump in his earliest iteration um, as a political, uh, you know, sort of pundit from the sidelines before he actually started running for well, when he was pretending to run for president and didn't his first sort of sign that he was, you know, going, you know, breaking bad was um his accusations against Barack Obama, him joining on to that conspiracy theory that Barack Obama was a secret Kenyan Muslim, that he was lying about his, his faith and, you know, was secretly a Muslim. That whole theory that Donald Trump jumped on um, and, and became kind of the leader of. And so that it was very specifically yeah. rooted in Islamophobia, his lies about 9-11, claiming he saw Muslims cheering after 9-11 and, you know, d trying to stop a mosque from being built on and on and on. Islamophobia kind of was his first entry into the door. And he is once again on the rise at a time when Europe is facing a potential yeah. influx again of, um, you know, refugees from places like Syria, from places like Yemen, where there's a huge uh, civil war, and now potentially Palestinian refugees. The timing 
It's similar to the Brexit timing, and it it does it frighten you as much as it does me. It does. It does. And I think there are two adjacent issues here equally important. The first is Donald Trump as a former president, possibly president again, his views on race and ethnicity. And you can throw in his management of housing projects and discrimination uh, lawsuits in New York to the Central Park Five to his most recent statement saying that migrants poison the blood of America. Uh, given that statement, I mean, I, that is an absolutely racist statement. I think there are reasons to qualitatively question Donald Trump's uh, commitment to racial equality or to uh, form an opinion that perhaps he is somebody who holds racist ideas and ideals. That is an important qualitative issue, his view of race. But it is adjacent to and also part of the issue of protecting democracy, because part and parcel to equality is actually the protection of democracy. And I think that is the most important issue of our time and one that voters will opine on next November, the protection of democracy here in the United States, because democracy is what secures one's suffrage and franchise. It provides for the rights of a political minority. It provides for an independent judiciary to enforce and interpret a, an independent constitution, arm's length from the chief executive. And, and that is the question of this time. Are we going to preserve democracy that then provides for equality and equity of all people so that we can self-govern? Or are we going to allow somebody to come in as a, as a dictator? dictator, if you will, with dictatorial uh, trends and and perverse views of race and ethnicity. That's the danger. And the final point I'd make is, yes, it's about Donald Trump, but a leader without followers is just out for a walk. Donald Trump has a movement behind him and elected officials behind them. And each one of those candidates needs to be put to the same litmus test. Yeah. And, and by the way, you know, Ruth, to, to come back to you on this point, I think David makes excellent points. You know, the United States has never been a multiracial democracy, right? We were a democracy for white ma Christian males and everyone else was under, you know, I mean, it was perfectly legal to kill black people until like the 1960s, right? In the 19, in the, in the United States, there was no legal system that would stop you. Um, and, and to me, you know, trying to form a multiracial democracy is even harder. There isn't a country that's been super successful at it on earth. I mean, we look at what's happening in Israel where there are two legal systems, whether you're Palestinian Arab or, um, or whether you're, you're Jewish and Israeli. It's like there aren't countries that have done it well. Like England hasn't done it well. No one's done it well. But to me, Brexit was a symbol and was a signal as to something that could happen here. I want to play, um, I was on with Michael Moore actually. And um, on uh, Bill Maher's show, this was in 2016. And I want to let you listen to what he said about how we should have seen what was coming because Brexit happened. Take a look. And I have to say, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry to have to kind of be the, the buzzkill here so early on, but I think Trump is going to win. I, I'm sorry. I live in Michigan. Let me tell you, let me right. tell you what he's, no. he's going to, it's going to be the Brexit strategy. The, the middle of England is Michigan, Wisconsin, right. Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And Mitt Romney lost by 64 electoral votes. The total electoral votes of those four states in the Rust Belt, 64. I mean, I doubted it that night. He, he was right, you know, Ruth. And, and the, the signs that we're seeing, again, you're already seeing threats um, from uh, Donald Trump's people, sweeping raids, giant camps, mass deportations. He's already saying that's what's going to happen, the kind of rhetoric. And the far right, you know, the consolidation of that kind of thing and normalization of it, it does feel like a warning sign. And to me, Wilders, Trump isn't, uh, Wilders isn't another Trump. Trump is another Wilders in a way, right? 
Oh yeah. And, um, that's why he's in my book, <laughs> um, Trump. And it was, it was a struggle to have him in my book. And it's been a struggle to get Americans to see him as an authoritarian. It's in part because we're very wedded to this idea that, that we are, uh, you know, a democracy where these things can't happen. Um, and we've seen, I mean, we had a coup attempt and, and people are not quite uh, able to digest that we had a coup attempt that came far closer to succeeding than many realize. And, you know, Trump has been uh, conditioning people to find violence attractive, to say it's justified sometimes, it's patriotic. Um, he's conditioned people along with all of his enablers, Fox News and the GOP to have uh, little faith in elections and now to dehumanize immigrants. Uh, the whole um, checklist, the whole playbook he's done now for, you know, six, seven years very effectively. So there's zero reason in my mind, having done research that shows every, every people who faced authoritarians thought that uh, they were in denial. They thought that it wasn't going to happen to them. And we are so. no different. And we already had uh, a coup attempt. That's the biggest, uh, which, which the, one of our two major parties not only does, does not reject, but has integrated the methods and philosophy of this coup into their party dogma. So the danger yeah. is high. And, and into their party dogma that includes David Jolly, the same things that the Argentine that Malay wants, a national abortion ban, these extreme economic policies that make the, the billionaires even richer and relegate workers to essentially servant status. They all have the same policies. Hungary, uh, you know, so formerly Poland, they got out of it. Italy, it, they're all saying the same things. Why is it that Americans can't hear it when Trump says it? And Mike well, Johnson, by the way, will do all of it, by the way. Mike Johnson is extremist yeah. and will do it all. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's exactly right. That is the coalition, the Trump coalition. I think in many ways it's because Republicans get away with messaging uh, around ignorance and taking advantage of voters. And what I mean by that is take Donald Trump's Muslim ban. That, that was the moment when I went to the House floor as a member of Congress, called on Donald Trump to drop out of the race. December 15, the Muslim ban. And my point was this. We do have a security issue in the United States. Who gets in and who is allowed uh, Who is allowed status to come in? Of course we do. It doesn't matter where they come from. So we have a security issue. We do not have a religious issue. But, but they communicate around a Muslim ban that is xenophobic, arguably racist, and they leave out that actually, yeah, we do have a legitimate security question. Why don't we focus on the security question? And so we counter that movement, that racist movement, by highlighting that discrepancy. Right now, the questions around Joe Biden's age, next November is not about age. It's about ideology. Republicans want it to be about age. And some in the in the right wing media want it to be about age. It's not about age. It's about who is going to protect democracy, who is going to protect individual rights, who is supporting a, a Roe framework as opposed to a Dobbs framework, who is going to protect the vote of all people. That is the question. But Republicans don't want to put that question in front of the American people. So it's fair to ask, why aren't voters perhaps grasping the import of this? Because Republicans won't talk about it. And Republicans talking to Republicans Republicans become an echo chamber that intensifies that Trump coalition and puts him in a point at, at a place where Michael Moore said he might return to the White House.
Yeah. And by the way, I will note there was a record number of members of Congress not running again. They're getting out of Dodge and leaving the rest of us to hold the bag. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, David Jolly, thank you both very much. Up next on the readout, Israel and Hamas extend their temporary truce as another group of hostages are released and aid workers and journalists are finally allowed in to assess the profound devastation. The readout continues after this. The high-wire negotiations continue in Israel and Gaza, where late today, 11 more hostages were freed. They are now in Israel. Here is edited footage from Al Jazeera showing them being handed over to the Red Cross. The released Israeli hostages include six Argentinian citizens, three French citizens, and two German citizens. In exchange, Israel released 30 children and three women who are being held in Israeli prisons. Hamas and Israel also announced that they will extend a pause in the fighting for another two days. This is just the latest batch of civilians released, bringing relief and joy to scores of family members. Yesterday, Hamas released 17 hostages, including a four-year-old American-Israeli dual citizen, Abigail Idan, whose parents were murdered on October 7th. In exchange, a Qatari spokesperson said Israel released 39 Palestinian women and children held in Israeli prisons, including a 14-year-old boy. We're learning more about who these Palestinian civilians are and why they were incarcerated. According to news reports by the BBC and CNN, some were serving sentences for attacks on Israelis, while many others were being held on what is called administrative detention, a controversial practice where people are held without any legal process. One of the released Palestinians was Mara Bakir, who was a child when Israeli forces shot and arrested her for allegedly attempting to stab an Israeli officer. Bakir and her family deny the accusations. As of September, the Israeli prison service was holding 146 Palestinian minors in detention or in prison or what it defined as security grounds. At that time, Israel was also holding 34 Palestinian minors for being in Israel illegally. This is according to Betzalem, a, a Jerusalem-based nonprofit that documents human rights violations in the Israeli-occupied Palestinian territories. And joining me now is Nora Erekat, human rights attorney and author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. Uh, Nora, thank you so much for being here. I want to start uh, with the question of these releases on, uh, on, on, on both sides. Um, it's been 40-some-odd days and 14,000 deaths. Uh, I've seen some of your interviews in which you've questioned whether this many deaths were needed to get these prisoners out. Um, what do you make of the fact that this pause is happening now, so many deaths later? Thanks, Joy. I've actually been really clear that I think that Israel has waged, now we're on day 52, uh, campaign that is not a military campaign, but what is very clearly an ethnic cleansing campaign that has not achieved any military advantage. After 52 days and an incredible humanitarian toll of 14,800 deaths, including 6,000 children, 4,000 women, 36,000 injured, 60 journalists, where my colleague Mu'in Rabbani points out that Israel has killed more UN staffers than Hamas leaders. They have not achieved anything through that uh, through that campaign, that onslaught of what legal scholars and genocide scholars has described as genocidal. 
In fact, the, the agreement that they had just agreed to in terms of the exchange of hostages uh, for hostages, many of these Palestinians should be understood as hostages as they they not they're not prisoners. They did not have adequate due process. Many of them, 2000 of the 8000 in captivity are held under administrative detention without charge or trial. This very same agreement was extended in the first week after October 7th. Israel could have achieved it immediately. It could have achieved it before the ground incursion that began on October 27th. It could have achieved it before the gutting and the incursion of a Shifa hospital and now 26 out of 35 hospitals. It's precisely why we can see now if there has been no military advantage, if no Israel did not increase its negotiating leverage, but what it did do was meet out this incredible, incredible high civilian humanitarian harm, then we are, we are pointing out that the purpose was not in fact, to release the hostages, which they could have released through this diplomatic uh, exchange, this diplomatic process, a political process, um, but in fact was a campaign intended to do what many Israeli leaders have told us, which is to turn Gaza into a parking lot, which is to ethnically cleanse the north of Gaza um, below the Wadi Gaza line. Now 1.7 million Palestinians or 70% of the population has been displaced and former uh, Justice Minister Ayala Chakid says that they won't return, but that they should be distributed as refugees across the world. This is why we're saying now it's not enough that we just focus on the refugees, because even those Palestinians that have been returned into the general population can be rearrested under a military occupation when there, where there is no due process or oversight, what is an apartheid regime, and that Israel must be held to account for this amount of destruction that it caused. We cannot turn our eye or attention away from it. Well, I mean, the the, 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 the point um, that the Israeli uh, government has said of doing the campaign was to return the hostages. We have seen, as you said, an, an extraordinary death toll as a result. Um, and not all of the people being returned, obviously, are Israeli. There are Thai, German, um, people from other countries as well. It, to your knowledge, are are there multiple countries, the people from where, from, from, you know, from those countries involved in this? Because presumably they're also at risk if Gaza is turned into a parking lot. Presumably some of those Thai nationals and German nationals and Irish nationals, et cetera, are under that parking lot as well. Are other governments, to your knowledge, there involved in these negotiations? I, I'm not. I'm not sure of the precise their precise involvement. I know that Qatar and Egypt have played a very close role in mediating this agreement. But I want to emphasize again that this amount of death and destruction did not enhance Israel's negotiating leverage to release the hostages. They could have released them in week one. That was on the table. They could have released them. Um, all the women and children, as Hamas has offered multiple times, Israel refused it. And in fact, the right wing of the Israeli government, which is now the, the, the governing coalition, continues to refuse it. They Israeli The Israeli leadership finally acquiesced to this agreement because of agitation from within Israel. Israel. It was the families of those Israelis right. that were held hostage that insisted that they enter into a diplomatic agreement because there is no military solution to this, Joy. There is no military solution. Hamas 
Hamas is not an exogenous force within Palestinian society. Hamas has emerged and is, is part of it as, as is, is wherever Palestinians are, is a concept in people's minds. And will even if you decimate it, it'll either go underground or it will be reproduced in another political party with a military wing that insists on using military force that must be used in line with international law, but will insist on using uh, military armed force to ensure the end of the occupation. So this isn't a situation where Israel can just get rid of Hamas. You can't beat an occupation out of existence, except that that's what Israel is trying to do through an ethnic cleansing campaign. You actually have to end the occupation. Okay. There is no way ask around you. this. Let me show you a picture. I, I want to show you a picture. I'm very curious to know what you would think of it. Um, this is um, the prime minister of Israel, um, Bibi Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, giving a tour to one of the in, in, at one of the kibbutzim that was attacked on, on uh, October 7 to one Elon Musk. What is happening here? Why is Elon Musk, who has made some pretty heinous anti-Semitic statements on his uh, version of Twitter um, and been accused of anti-Semitism, what is he doing in Israel? Why would he be received by the prime minister at this time? Well, I'm not really sure why Elon Musk is there. Uh, I will say that it points out to a phenomenon that we have seen, which is the conflation of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, where we can have very explicit anti-Semites like former President Donald Trump, who pointed to a room of Jewish Americans and referred to Israel as their country, highlighting this trope of, of, of dual loyalties and nationalities, who said that, you know, refers to their wealth and their power in a way that it's on classic anti-Semitic tropes and yet is hailed as Israel's, you know, number one ally. And this points to this phenomenon of the difference between support for Israel and support and protection for Jewish life. Those are not the same thing. The opposition to Zionism and the idea that you oppose, you oppose an ethno-national state that is contingent on maintaining a Jewish demographic majority that requires the ongoing removal of Palestinians and the confiscation of their lands is not the same thing as bigotry towards Jewish people. And that's precisely why you see a very robust, diverse coalition, um, including Jewish Voice for Peace and other anti-Zionist Jews who are part of this movement. And so when we see right. Elon Musk there and you're scratching your head and saying, but wait a minute, I thought that he was actually, you know, has said very anti-Semitic things. It's precisely because these are not the same thing. You can support Israel and hate Jewish people. And that's and that's the the, the sad truth here is yeah. that many of us who are fighting to free Palestine are fighting for all people's freedom, including for Jewish liberation, which we see as part and parcel of our human emancipation. And we find yeah. our safety in solidarity. Nora Erekat, uh, thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. And up next, cheers. And up next, police have a suspect in custody after three students of Palestinian descent are shot in Vermont. The latest on the shootings and the investigation when the readout returns. There was no reason for this man to approach them. There was no reason for him to try and kill them. My husband thought that he would be safe in the U.S., thought that he would be safe at Brown, thought he would be safe in Vermont. 
That was the mother of Hisham Awartani. Her son was one of three college students of Palestinian descent who were shot on Saturday in Burlington, Vermont, in what local officials called a hateful act. The three students have been identified by relatives as Tashin Ali Ahmad Kinan, Abdal Hamid, and Hisham Awartini. All are, all are 20 years old and were visiting Burlington for the Thanksgiving holiday. All three young men remain hospitalized. Police say a white man with a handgun shot them as they took a walk before dinner on Saturday. The students told police that at the time they were speaking a mixture of Arabic and English. Two of them wore kefiyas, the traditional black and white scarf worn by many Palestinians and their allies to symbolize their quest for an independent state. Today, the suspect in the shooting, 48-year-old Jason Eaton, pleaded not guilty to three counts of attempted murder in the second degree. An NBC review of his social media prof- of social media profiles and websites appearing to belong to Eaton found a YouTube page featuring videos with titles like Expose Fauci and covering topics like COVID vaccines, government surveillance, and economics. Vermont officials have not yet revealed a motive, but the Vermont state's attorney said whether or not this is a hate crime by the law, no question it was a hateful act. Attorney General Merrick Garland said the FBI is investigating whether the shooting was a hate crime and warned about the escalation of threats of violence here in the U.S. in the wake of the October 7 attack on Israel by Hamas and the subsequent bombing of Gaza by Israel. All of us have also seen a sharp increase in the volume and frequency of threats against Jewish, Muslim, and Arab communities across our country since October 7. There is understandable fear in communities across the country. Joining me now is Edward Ahmed Mitchell, Deputy Director of the Council on Islamic Amer- on American Islamic Relations. Um, Mr. Mitchell, thank you so much for being here. Uh, what do you make of this happening in a place that is considered a very safe state, a very quiet state, um, but it happened nonetheless? Joy, I wish I could say I was surprised, but I'm not. This was entirely predictable. Anti-Muslim bigotry and anti-Palestinian racism are absolutely out of control across the United States. Our civil rights organization uh, reported a 216% increase in complaints after October 7th compared to the same month last year. That includes discrimination, hate speech, and also hate crimes from the murder of that young boy in Chicago now to the uh, attack on these young men in Vermont. Uh, This was predictable. When you have an atmosphere of anti-Muslim hate, anti-Palestinian rhetoric, it's no surprise that three men minding their own business or shot for the crime of being visibly Palestinian. Um, I will note that in addition to those instances, you mentioned Wadia Al-Fayumi, the young man you were talking about that was stabbed 26, time in, in a, 26 times in his suburban, suburban Chicago home. There was another little um, uh, little children who were attacked. Um, Ashish Prashar was holding his son when a woman approached him, called him a terrorist and said, this is post 9-11 again, like every brown person now is a target and threw coffee on them. Um, the question, I guess, is... Are public officials, in your view, doing enough to try to tamp this down? You have seen the FBI uh, director testify on Capitol Hill. Um, you just heard the attorney general making those statements. Do you feel that public officials are doing enough? Um, there also, of course, is a, a growth and explosion in anti-Semitism as well. But do you feel that public officials are doing enough to tamp this down? Public officials are doing better, but they have to take responsibility. Many of our elected officials contributed to this atmosphere of anti-Muslim bigotry and anti-Palestinian 
racism. They spent weeks after October 7th dehumanizing the Palestinian people, spreading Islamophobic conspiracy theories. And they did that not only to justify the killing of Palestinians in Gaza, but also to try to silence Muslims and Palestinians here in America. And that had consequences. Wadiya was killed within a week of this nonsense being spread into our uh, public uh, discourse. And then we have seen numerous incidents of violence and hate and discrimination. So I give credit to President Biden and others for improving their language. But the president and many other people use some pretty horrific language in the first few weeks of October that has contributed to the atmosphere of anti-Muslim and anti-Palestinian sentiment that we're seeing. Uh, I want to play for you um, some students at Brown University, where one of these students, uh, Hisham Artwani, uh, who was a junior at Brown, um, and he, they are all recovering, well, hopefully will re- be recovering, but some of his fellow students at Brown made these comments to our reporter. Um, please take a listen. I was shocked, but also not surprised, because there have been other acts of violence um, that are isolated from this event, so... I guess it really hit close to home. I feel like I would, especially after this like shooting that just happened, I definitely feel like I would need to, you know, be cautious about how I wear my kafiyah. Uh, and you, as you saw, the last young lady was wearing a kafiyah. That is something that a lot of uh, pro-Palestinian demonstrators, whether or not they are Arab or Muslim, are doing. Um, what do you say to, to, to those students in order to keep themselves safe? And what do you make of the atmosphere on college campuses where there has been a sense that people don't necessarily feel free to speak or to protest? A significant number of the complaints we've received relate to students on college campuses who have been doxxed, harassed, or threatened simply because they've spoken up for the human rights of the Palestinian people. And again, that hateful language, that discourse has real-life practical consequences, including the potential for violence. I know many uh, Palestinians and Muslims here in the United States are worried about being visibly Muslim, but they're also, or Palestinian, but they're also defiant. They're not going to let bigots or extremists scare them out of standing up for Palestine or visibly practicing their faith. So I think you're still going to see the kafiyah being worn all over. I don't think that's going to stop, but I do think people will be cautious and careful and vigilant, but it's not going to stop us from living our lives and carrying on and saying what needs to be said in defense of the Palestinian people. Have you had conversations or has the organization, has CARE had conversations with these families in Vermont? Yes, we've we've had the pleasure of speaking to the uncle who's been speaking for the family, and we extend again our support to them. Uh, They should have never had to go through this, and we pray that that God, Allah, grants the uh, complete healing to these young men uh, and allows them to carry on with their lives and have fruitful, wonderful, healthy lives. But yes, we've been in touch with them and also our partners, the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, who are doing a great job providing support to the family. Uh, Edward Ahmed Mitchell, thank you very much. And still ahead, author, actor, and U.S. Senate candidate Hill Harper joins me exclusively right here on The Readout to talk about how he turned down an offer of $20 million to end his Senate bid and mount a primary challenge against Congresswoman and squad member Rashida Tlaib. We'll be right back. The vitriol against the only Palestinian member of Congress, Palestinian-American member of Congress, Rashida Tlaib, is is at such a fever pitch that a Michigan businessman named Lyndon Nelson allegedly offered Democratic Senate candidate Hill Harper $20 million to drop out of the race and run against Tlaib instead. That is according to Harper. 
Nelson has a history of involvement with the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, APAC, a group directly targeting Tlaib. But the committee told Politico it was, quote, absolutely not involved in any way in this matter, adding that their records indicate that Nelson has not contributed to APAC in over a decade. Nelson didn't respond to our requests for comment. Harper, an author and actor, said, quote, I'm running to be a voice for the people. I will not be bought or bossed or bullied. I'm not going to run against the only Palestinian American in Congress just because some special interests don't like her. Hill Harper, Democratic candidate for the United States Senate in Michigan, joins me now. Uh, Hill Harper, thank you so much for being here. I, I want to start just by asking you, how, walk us through how this offer occurred. Okay. Uh, hey, Joy, I was driving to Pontiac uh, to for a grassroots fundraiser that definitely wasn't going to raise $20 million. And um, uh, phone rings. And while I'm driving, I get, I get a call that uh, makes it very clear that uh, in my race, in my Senate race, um, my opponent was going to get uh, 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 fundraising and there was no money for me in that. But, but if I dropped out of that race against an opponent they support, uh, uh, he said there would be $10 million in soft money, you know, independent expenditure money. And then there would be an effort to raise the same on the hard side um, for if I was to run against Congresswoman Tlaib. And uh, I mean, I was I was taken aback. I was shocked by that. Um, I said, you know, I obviously I said no. But, you know, it, this isn't about this just one one call and one wealthy donor. It's, it's about the system that allows for that type of influence. And that's what really, I think, angers me. And, and that's why folks were, you know, you pull back the veil. It's almost like out of a movie, right? You get a call and people don't know that that's happening. And then you have to wonder how many candidates are bought and how many people are out of office because they've been targeted and money's used as the weapon. There is some reporting from M Live, which is a Michigan local paper, that another candidate and prominent Arab American community leader named Nasser Beydoun says that he has also been approached. Uh, he was approached by a former Michigan Democratic Party chair named Lon Johnson with an identical offer in a November 10 meeting. The money would have come via the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Johnson denied Beydoun's claims, saying to Politico, that's just crazy. I didn't offer him 20 million or any other amount of money to run against Rashida. That's insane. Uh, APAC spokesperson Marshall Whitman said the organization has absolutely no involvement in any way with these matters. Um, have you heard of anything like that? Do you know Nasir, Nasir, uh, Nasir Badoon? Have you heard of anyone else being offered money to run against Rashida Tlaib? No, I, I, I don't. I do know Nasser. Um, and I don't know if that's true or not. I can't I can't speak to that. Um, but I can speak to the idea and the fact that our system is set up that allows calls like this to happen because clearly they are effective. I mean, 93 percent of, of federal candidates that raise the most money win. And when we think about how much money is in all these areas, because it's not just about APAC. It's about uh, the 60 percent the of Americans believe that there should be sensible gun control laws, yet it never passes. The NRA, the gun lobby is very powerful. Just think about I live here in Detroit, Joy, and 10 minutes across a bridge into Canada, uh, 
prescription drug costs for, for many life-saving drugs are 50% less, and, and, and folks want something done about that, yet Big Pharma spends over $373 million in 2022 on political candidates and independent expenditure. And so the problem is actually the way our system is set up that allows money to corrupt and corrupt our system that gets us away from actually representing people and representing lobbyists. I'm running to not represent a lobby. I want to empower the people, not lobbyists. What would you uh, do as a United States senator? Because you make a very good point that President Obama made and angered a certain Supreme Court justices, uh, justice named Samuel Alito in saying it, that uh, the Supreme Court greenlit the idea of unlimited money in politics. What could be done, in your view, uh, in the United States Senate to change that? Well, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a massive proponent for campaign finance reform. You know, I don't think that any election should be longer than six months outside the presidency. I think that you shouldn't be able to raise over $100,000 with a $100,000 public match, for instance. And then the rest has to be volunteer driven. If you're actually running to represent people, then you should be able to actually speak to people's hearts and minds and get them involved in your campaign because what the Senate should be and what the House of Representatives should be and our Congress should be, should be an institution of service of the people's will. And right now, our representatives federally are not serving the people's will. They're serving the will of big corporate interest and moneyed interest, whether it's the, whether it's big oil, whether it's big pharma, whether it's the NRA or institutions like that, or even just individual wealthy donors like Harlan Crow. You know, when you think about money and how it's actually corrupted, even our Supreme Court, you know, look at that eighth, eighth circuit court ruling last week that gutted uh, the Voting Rights Act. I mean, you're you're, you're talking yeah. about, you know, my they quoted my Harvard Law School classmate, Neil Gorsuch, both appointed by Trump. You know, these are people that that, that there's a uh, uh, moneyed interest behind promoting a certain ideology behind promoting yeah. certain politics. And I think that's why we're not seeing problems being solved by our representatives. I think you're going to get a lot of amens on that. Way too much money in politics, way too many big donors, billionaires, et cetera, controlling our politics. Uh, U.S. Senate candidate Hill Harper, please come back and let's talk more about Absolutely. getting this money out of the system. I think that is a very important conversation. Let's have it again. Thank you for being here. We'll be right back. Today began the official ceremony celebrating the life of former First Lady Rosalind Carter, who passed away last week at the age of 96. At this moment, she's lying in repose at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library in Atlanta, where members of the public have been paying their final respects. Her husband, former President Jimmy Carter, is expected to attend her tribute service tomorrow. The 99-year-old former president has been in hospice care since February. Also planning to attend are President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden, former President Bill Clinton and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, as well as other former First Ladies, Michelle Obama, Laura Bush, and Melania Trump. Mrs. Carter will then be laid to rest on Wednesday. And that is tonight's readout.